0: This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu for more information.
1: McDonald's operates the biggest restaurant chain in France, which is managed by French managers. The company's franchisees are French, as are their employees, and they also source their supplies from France. And yet, most people in France regard McDonald's as an American firm that is selling junk food and undermining the French way of life. That is just one example of how the question of corporate identity has become complex and confused today because of globalization, according to Hamid Bouchiki and John Kimberly, authors of a new book titled The Soul of the Corporation, How to Manage the Identity of Your Company, published in October 2007 by Wharton School Publishing. How can a company cut through this confusion and use the notion of identity as a source of competitive advantage? John Kimberley, a professor of management, healthcare systems, and sociology at Wharton, spoke about that question and more with Knowledge at Wharton. John Kimberley,
2: welcome to Knowledge at Wharton podcast, and thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. You write in your book that in the past, most people and groups were clear about their identity, but now the question has become much more confused. Why is it so, and how does it affect companies such as mcdonald 's, for example?
1: Well, I think we have to start with uh, confusion of identity at the individual level and then sort of work up to the uh, the company level mcdonald 's, by the way, is a great example of a, of a company level uh, issue but it, it it seems to us to my co author Hamid Bushiki and and me that um, whereas in the past uh, identities have tended to be relatively clear, relatively consistent, relatively continuous at the individual level. Today, um, things that used to be sort of settled and certain are up for grabs. Gender, for example. Um, And we we think that the fact that there is, in some cases, ambiguity about identity and the possibilities of questions about identity at the individual level, when you ratchet it up to... Issues that unfold at the organizational level, you see a, a f- similar sort of phenomenon, and, and you see identity becoming problematic in the current context, simply in ways that it hasn't been historically. Now, the example of McDonald's is a terrific one because McDonald's, um, which we all we all know and love so well, um, has is a, a quintessentially American company, which faced an interesting problem when it. Um, expanded overseas, and particularly in the context of, of France and its um, its presence in France, um, it started in France in 1975. And I'll never forget seeing the first McDonald's restaurant on the uh, Boulevard Saint Michel in Paris, and saying to myself, "You know, this will never fly. The French fast food and and French they don't go together in the same sentence." Well, it turns out now that McDonald's is the largest purchaser of food in the country, in the country of France. It's grown phenomenally. But at the same time, it it hasn't grown without problems. Um, Its problem is, in the context of France, who is it? Is it an American company that's doing business in France, or is it a French company that is doing business in France? There have been demonstrations led by José Beauvais, who is a a colorful person on the French political scene, an activist, um, who has raised real serious questions about that. And and McDonald's has struggled with this because at one level, if you look at who they hire, they hire uh, French employees. If you look at the structure of the top of the company in France, it's all French. They do all of their sourcing for products in France – so at one level, it is a, a f- very French company, but at another level, the identity is ambiguous because of its roots in, um, and origins in the United States. So I think this is just one example of, of how an identity issue is sort of playing out at the level of uh, companies and corporations.
0: Uh, what is the I-dimension? Could you explain that and why it should matter to a company like Coca-Cola, for instance?
1: Sure. The I-dimension is simply a, a term that we came up with to uh, encompass what we mean by identity. Um, companies can have a variety of phenomena in which their identity is anchored. Uh, it may be a brand. It may be a mission. It may be a particular form of business. But every company has a constellation of things which together define an answer to the question, who are we? Um, so the I-dimension, that term I-dimension, is, is designed to capture um, all of those things that together define uh, a company's identity. Coca-Cola, great, it's a great example. Um, Coca-Cola, as, as uh, most people who follow the beverage industry know, has um, been locked in a struggle, competitive struggle with Pepsi for a long, long time. And recently, um, Coke has suffered some real setbacks and uh, has lost market share to Pepsi. Pepsi's really gained a lot of ground on Coca-Cola. And in a recent um, shareholders meeting, the CEO of Coke raised the question uh, in in a way which to uh, Hamid and me spoke volumes about identity. When he he asked the question um, of whether those things that have made Coke a remarkably successful company throughout its history are the same things that are going to carry Coke forward and make it successful in the future. Um, And and so the company had to face some questions about whether it stays in the drinks business, whether it moves outside the drinks business, whether it begins to uh, make investments in, for example, water and we know that they just made a huge investment, the largest investment the company has ever made in an acquisition um, in, um, in a water business, they're struggling with the question of who are we and what do we need to be, who do we need to be in order to be successful in the future. And I think the fact that um, Isdell was willing to bring that up and raise that in a, in a shareholders meeting and confront it head on, to me spoke volumes about how some companies, some leaders, are what we would call identity sensitive and are really beginning to frame strategic issues um, in identity terms.
2: How does a company's identity differ from its reputation or its brand?
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, in fact, we have a, a, an entire chapter in the book that um, that tries to answer that question. We think it answers it um, reasonably well, but let, let, me, let me give you the abbreviated um, version here, Steve. Um, in some cases, brand and identity are... Basically, um, convergent in a particular company. But in some cases, they're very, very different. Um, let me give you an example of the latter uh, where they're different, just to sort of give you an idea of what we're, how we're framing the, the issue here. There's a, a Chinese company called TCL, which is the largest maker of TVs, uh, manufacturer of TVs um, in the world. Um, when you, as a consumer, go into um, a retailer, and look to buy a TV, um, you are probably unaware of the fact that there is a a better-than-even chance that the TV you buy will actually be manufactured by TCL, a Chinese company, even though the brand may be RCA. So in some cases, um, the the company's identity – in fact, strategically, a company um, puts brands out in a sense and and makes the brands visible – but, but keeps its identity as a company relatively invisible. Um, let, let me give you a, another example of where this w- was a problem. It was a problem with Lenovo. Uh, a, as you know, Lenovo is a Chinese uh, computer company which acquired IBM um, about five years ago, or the, acquired the, the PC business of IBM about five years ago. And, um, and recently Lenovo um, put um, in a, responded to an RFP from the Department of Defense uh, for supplying computers to um, the DOD. When some senators got wind of the fact that uh, this was a, uh, a Chinese company, there was a huge outcry. Um, do we want a company whose identity and, and branding are Chinese, providing, supplying computers to our Department of Defense – um, huge, huge issue there, and they ultimately um, didn't get the contract. Where where brands and and identities converge, uh, a, a great example of that is Harley Davidson. Um, when you when you um, in contrast to when you buy a TV, you you, you really may not care who the manufacturer who, who the organization is behind the TV set itself. Um, in the case of a company like Harley Davidson. There's a really interesting joining of brand identity and organizational identity. Uh, when you buy a Harley Davidson uh, – do, do either of you ride? No. <laughs> uh, when, when you buy a Harley Davidson, you're, you're, buying, you're buying more than a bike. You're buying a uh, – and it's almost a way of life. Uh, and, and as you probably know, Harley makes almost as much money selling things that are, are, uh, are branded but are not bikes – they make a lot of money selling leather jackets and, and so on and so forth. Um, but it's a great example of a company where the um, organizational identity is tightly coupled to the brand identity. And in the minds of the consumer, when you buy a Harley Davidson, you're buying into the organization that is behind the brand. So, there, it, so we have some great examples, if we look around the business landscape, of companies in which there's this tight coupling between brand identity and corporate identity organizational identity um, and other cases in which there's deliberate separation between the two.
0: what, What was very interesting about your Lenovo example is that uh, before Lenovo bought uh, IBM's PC business, the same thinkpads would have been probably quite acceptable to the Department of Defense. That's right. And the computer is still the same. <laughs> and and or, the computer is still Or the maybe same. better. <laughs> exactly right. Uh, you know, I, I was reminded by what you said about uh, a lecture I once heard by Amartya Sen, the, the Nobel, Nobel Prize-winning economist, who said that as an individual he is the intersection of various of many identities uh, does that also apply to organizations
1: yeah sure i think it does um and in fact one of the interesting things is uh the way in which companies uh deal with the fact that in in any company almost by definition there are multiple identities at work there are identities at the subunit level at the divisional level or there can be um, and as well as at the um, as at the parent level, and and it's a real challenge I think for um, for companies to to sort of manage the intersection between what I'll call for the purposes of argument here local identities that is identities of the organizational subunit which you spend most of your time in, and the identity of uh, of the mothership, as it were. Let me give a, an example. Uh, that uh, to me illustrates very effective management of these um, multiple intersecting identities uh, is J and j J and j as you know uh, is a company that 's historically grown through acquisition and it has a reputation for being a company that is highly decentralized um, but it 's also a company that has managed this um, this issue of the identity of the mothership of the company as a whole, um, and the identity of organizational subunits in a very effective way. So, uh, an acquisition, uh, a company that's acquired by J and J, keeps its name. Typically, will keep um, many of the top management people. Uh, What the company does is it. it, What the the corporate uh, parent does is obviously install some systems. Uh, for monitoring performance um, and and rewarding employees but in each one of j and j's subsidiaries there 's this what uh, what I would call in in French a double appartenance that, that means in the heads of people who work in the subsidiaries they belong both to the subsidiary and to j and j as a whole so so the it 's a very interesting uh, a very interesting arrangement it the j and j has developed over time where people who um, who work in the subsidiaries are able simultaneously to carry the identity of their organization um, at the same time they carry the identity of the parent and this has worked to j and j's advantage because they're able to through the j and j credo and and other devices keep that corporate uh, the the the, uh, the the identity of the mothership very much alive and present in the minds of of their Subsidiary employees while at the same time creating space for the um, identity of the subsidiary to to play a, an important role as well, so this multiple intersecting identities, of course we see that at the individual level all the time we we are at one and the same time we have a a, a gender, we have a race, we have lots of things that distinguish us, perhaps a, some sort of religious affiliation, lots of things that distinguish us, and that at various moments in time we um, sort of resonate to, so it, it's at one moment in time my maleness may dominate in a particular relationship, whereas another, at another moment in time my age may dominate. i don't think it's quite that complex at the level of, of organizations. at least the way Hamid and I see it, um, we don't need to thin slice the, um, the company identities in in, in, quite, that, in quite that fashion. Mm.
2: How then does identity become a source of competitive advantage for companies, organizations?
1: Well, it can become a huge source of competitive advantage because what it does, it acts as a, um, a focal point for, uh, for people's motivation and energy, where there is a, a convergence uh, internally around this question of who are we, um, so where there's a... a, a a relatively strong and consistent sense internally within a company um, with respect to this answer of who are we and basically, why are we, why are we here? What that does is it acts as a force for bringing people together around common purpose. And at the end of the day, that's what, um, that's what makes a company go when people come together around common purpose and are, are motivated in, in, in the sort of the same direction. So it, that, that's, it sounds very simple. Of course, it's a lot more complex than that, but, but at the, You know, at the most general level, that's, I think, the answer to the question of of how can identity lead to competitive advantage.
0: Could it also uh, extend further beyond companies to, say, cities?
1: Well, interesting you should uh, ask that question. Um, I was uh, was very struck by our mayor-elect Michael Nutter's uh, speech in Philadelphia on Monday, uh, two days ago, three days ago, where he um, called on... The city and the citizens of Philadelphia to remember that the city has a, an important identity which, in his view, has been under leveraged in the past and can be a great source of advantage going forward so what 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 Nutter I think is doing is um, and I, I think it if he manages it correctly, it can be a, a, a hugely powerful device for galvanizing. citizens of the city around common purpose. What what he next needs to do is articulate what he thinks that identity is and make sure that there's a substantial amount of of agreement that is, you know, so people when asked the question, what does it mean to be a Philadelphian, will have a, you know, a a sense of probably tradition and history, a sense of perhaps economic currently um, economic vitality, uh, and will be able to sort of get behind the, the Nutter agenda, whatever the Nutter agenda in specific terms turns out to be. I think he's on to something here, and I, I'm looking forward to seeing how it, how it plays out.
0: Does identity have a dark side as well?
1: Um, identity can have a dark side. Um, and historically, if, if we look at the corporate landscape, um, there, there are many examples of, of where identity, which can be, um, as, as Steve pointed out, a, a huge asset, can also become a huge liability. Um, it, it becomes a liability when uh, when you get stuck in an identity committed to um, a particular answer to this question of who are we, when the answer to that question in the marketplace um, is no longer viable. And we have some great examples. I'll just give you one example. There, there are literally dozens of them out there. But take the example of Polaroid, um, which uh, historically, in response to the question of who are we, um, the answer was, was very clear and unambiguous. We are uh, the world's uh, premier manufacturer of cameras that are in the, in the instant film business. Um, we, we produce instant photography. Uh, and uh, despite the signals from the environment that new technology was emerging, uh, which threatened the, the preeminence of Polaroid in that instant photography um, space they were they were unable to turn the ship and um, stayed with the, the historical identity at a time when the competition was moving toward digital photography and the result was uh, was not pretty. one of the corporate icons of the 1960s today uh, well you know the story it's it 's a in a sense a tragic story. Other companies have been able to respond. Although, um, let's take the example of Eastman Kodak. Uh, it took Kodak a long time to turn the ship, um, and and they, they were it, it wasn't it wasn't clear in the latter part of the '90s uh, and the early part of um, of this century that um, that they were going to be able to turn it and make the move to digital. But it, it now appears as though they have. Made that shift, and and what could have been an identity trap for them, trapped in the in the old definition of what photography is and what it, what a company that's in that business needs to be doing, they, they seem to have um, escaped the trap, and are are on the presumably on the road to um, a, a bright future.
2: Hmm. Well, maybe the opposite of um, of an identity trap. What happens if a CEO fails to appreciate the significance of his or her
1: company's identity? Uh, is there, are there examples of companies? Well, actually, actually the reason, one of the reasons that we wrote the book um, in the first place was um, our feeling that there are um, enough examples around of incredibly talented, bright, and accomplished leaders who are um, not sensitive to what we call the eye dimension, to the, to the significance of organizational identity, and enough examples of CEOs who've tripped, stumbled, and fell over this lack of recognition of the significance of identity to make it worthwhile, um, sort of raising the issue. So, just to give you one one example of um, a CEO who tripped, in our view, who tripped over um, identity—that is, d- didn't have a deep enough appreciation of the significance of identity—is Carly Fiorina at HP. Um, who, as there, there are lots of reasons why Carly Fiorina lost her job, and we're not. Um, so presumptuous to think that the fact that she was not identity sensitive um, is the only reason. Uh, please understand that. Uh, on the other hand, our view is that um, had she been more aware of the significance of HP's historical identity for not only for the employees of HP, but for the world outside HP, um, that she, she might have been... Um, more successful in her um, in her efforts to um, be an effective leader of that company, I, I still believe that her her strategy was was a, uh, a a very smart strategy. She she did not trip over strategy, in my view. She tripped over um, over identity and a lack of awareness of the significance of identity. Let me just make a point here, if I could. The, the way the way we think about um, organizational life and, and corporate life is that um, and, and the way leaders typically approach the um, the challenge of, of managing in this age of identity uh, is we, we think of sort of an outer layer in a company consisting of basically operational issues, um, operations, decisions about operations. And typically, when there's a, a performance problem, um, the, the initial response, and it often is appropriate, is to change something in the operations the way a company does its business. Um, if those efforts are unsuccessful, then you go to the next level, which is the strategic level. You say, well, maybe we, we've, we've changed our operations. We, we've tried to make some adjustments there. They haven't been successful. Maybe we ought to rethink our strategy. So... There's some strategic changes that are introduced. In some cases, those strategic changes result in positive change, but the, but, uh, the, the record there is not terribly uh, is not terribly strong. Um, so there are lots of cases where strate- efforts to change strategy have crashed, and what we would argue is that they've crashed on the shoals of identity, which we think lies deeper in an organization. So you have on the on the, the sort of the outer layer, you've got operations. Sort of at the next deeper level, you've got strategy. At the deepest level, you've got identity, which is this question of um, – the answer to the question, who are we? Uh, and so I, it, it's just useful, I think, for people who are leading organizations to, to be aware of this deeper level. And, and our argument is that if they have some awareness of this deeper level, they're less likely to run into the Carly-Fiorina problem than they, they would otherwise.
2: Uh,
0: lots of companies have been merging. What happens to identity uh, during and after a merger? <laughs>
1: well, if we had a couple of hours, um, <laughs> we, we, it would be fun to, to really take a deep swing at that. But but the, you know, at, at a um, at a perhaps a superficial level. But but let me let me just try to answer the question um, quickly. There are all sorts of issues when two companies merge that um, Amit and I would define as identity issues, which if the um, parties involved are identity sensitive, they can manage effectively, but which if they aren't, they don't, and there there are ultimately, ultimately problems. Um, you know, two companies merging that have been in the same industry historically have Typically, been competitors, right? So the identity of Company A has, in part, historically been not being Company B. So when you put th- all of a sudden you put these two together, and and, and what do you have? Uh, well, you can have a train wreck um, if you're not careful. And I and I think that there are lots of examples of of failed marriages, failed corporate marriages, failed mergers. Um, Daimler-Chrysler uh, probably being one of the, the more obvious and, and visible ones, but there, there are many more um, that, that one could, could point out. I guess our, I could give lots, of, lots more examples. I guess the, the point here that we would make is that when two companies merge, what you're merging is, is histories um, and answers to, the, to this question of who are we, which are different in the two cases. And so the people who are responsible for managing and leading the merged entity need to focus a lot of attention on what is the answer to the question, who are we going to be going forward? And there are lots of tools and techniques that one can use to to try to come to a a clear answer to that question. But it's it's more, it's about a whole lot more than simply um, integrating operations. And that, that is the most uh, it's problematic for sure um, operational integration. But um, identity integration is what, I th- what we think will ultimately determine whether a merger um, is successful or not.
2: And then what about the opposite situation? What happens during a
1: spin off? Well, you know, that's, a, that's a, another interesting question. Um, in in spin offs, the issue is how much of the uh, identity the parent is carried forward into the, into the spun off entity. Um, and there, there are all sorts of interesting cases of where it's worked well and where it hasn't worked well. One of the cases where it's been problematic is, um, the spin-off of Agilent from, from HP, where, um, the, 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 the people who were, uh, who went with Agilent when it was spun off from HP were mostly HP veterans. And, um, it was it was never clear um particularly in the early days of that spin-off whether um agilent was really hp um, in its soul <laughs> is this, this is what we're talking about as soft as that may sound but what you know a company lives in the heads of those people who are a part of it and you know the fact that the senior management team at at agilent was uh was Ninety percent um, XHP means that there's a lot of HP in the soul of Agilent. so, the, so I, you know the question for us becomes if, if you look at um, in the automotive industry, the parts manufacturers, the delphis and so on it's just interesting to to see the extent to which spinoffs are are really spun off or the extent to which the um, umbilical cord is is never cut effectively, and, and our view is that if it's never cut, if it's never cut, um, in in identity terms, then th- there's likely to be an ambiguous relationship between the former parent and the spun-off entity, which is only um, which is bound to complicate the uh, the leadership challenge substantially.
0: How should a company manage its
1: identity in the context of an alliance or a joint venture? You, um, you, you, your, your question, you have a twinkle in your eye, McCool, when, when you ask that question. Um, the, the fact that I'm uh, one of the hats I wear is, is executive director of the alliance between <laughs> the Wharton School and INSEAD, uh, uh, I'm, I'm sure your question was not accidental here. Um, and you know it's it's interesting in, in an alliance. Um, I want to. I'm going to speak a little bit about um, the one that is close to my close to my heart here, which is the the NCID Wharton Alliance, because this is an alliance which my my sense is initially um, many felt would probably not um, have much traction and, and would not go very far. Um, and and we've learned we've just learned a ton about what makes alliances. Successful and what some of the um, some of the potential pitfalls are as we've gone ahead. And um, I've got to say that this issue of identity uh, really lies at the heart. I, these are two schools, both of which have uh, very strong reputations in the marketplace independently. Um, so the question is what um, when when you try to develop an alliance around certain activities, How do you maintain the 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 separate identities on the one hand, while um, working together and collaborating effectively in some other areas um, at the same time? Uh, And and that's a a, you're 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 walking a a tightrope there. The solution that I think we have, at least intuitively, um, arrived at in the context of the Wharton-Insead alliance, is you need to let both partners maintain the the strength of their independent identities you don't want to compromise those but you need to be able to build on in areas where it looks like there is um leverage that can be gained by cooperation you, you need to 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 merge the identities let me give you a couple of concrete examples because that was um sounded pretty Pretty superficial there. But um, to to me, the example of uh, executive education is one which is particularly interesting because we both compete and cooperate in that space. Um, Both schools have have, uh, very strong executive education programs. And yet there are instances in which um, doing alliance-based programs, that is programs where the two of us uh, work in concert, really add value to the customer. So, the fact that we can we have this sort of global design and delivery capability, if you put the two schools together um, gives us an advantage over other competitors in the marketplace, so we try to leverage those. We still compete head to head for a lot of business, but there are clearly there's a set of potential customers out there that appreciate this global design and delivery capability so that's where we can that's where we can collaborate and and we do it in a way which um allows the identities of both schools to be maintained while at the same time being being fused. a mm. great answer.
2: Mm. How can a company get a handle on its own identity? Uh, are there any tools they could use?
1: Well, we have, um, we have a chapter in the book on, on that. It's called um, The Identity Audit. And, and the idea here is that um, for those leaders who are um, identity-sensitive – that is who understand the power of identity and the significance of identity um, and who uh, want a way to get a handle, a concrete handle on identity with a, with a um, with a question which should be on their minds, is our current identity serving us well? Um, and is it likely to continue to serve us well going into the future, or do we need to, in some ways, modify or change that identity, and in what direction. Um, there is what we call the identity audit, which um, involves um, developing a, a uh, an empirical answer to the two questions which are fundamental to any company. And those two questions are, internally, the amount of consensus or, or lack thereof around the question, who are we? In some companies, there is a... There's very close convergence among folks internally with respect to that answer. In other questions, you know, the answer is all over the place. So that's the first question, who are we internally? And the second question is, for external stakeholders, what's the answer to the question, who are they? Who are they? And there, again, you can have, in some cases, there's a great deal of consistency and convergence in the way outsiders see a company. But in other cases... There's great ambiguity about that. We're not really sure who the heck they are. Um, So we have some tools that um, can enable uh, leaders to sort of take the temperature, to diagnose both the internal and the external dimensions of identity, to assess the amount of convergence or or divergence in that, and then to make some judgment calls about where they are. Um, And and that is in in two respects. Judgment call number one is, um, is there... An adequate amount of con- are we satisfied with the amount of convergence around our internal identity or not? Do we need to initiate some activities which um, lead to greater convergence around the question of who are we? And then secondly, with respect to the outside world, to, to key stakeholders, um, is there uh, are, are we satisfied with the amount of convergence there with respect to the question of, of who are they, um, or do we need to do some work? And we can, we can thin slice that you know, as much as, as a, a company would like with respect to, to stakeholders and constituencies. So there is a, there is a methodology for those who um, are interested uh, with respect to doing this identity audit.
0: Just to end on something that's very much in the news, uh, the former head of the New York Stock Exchange, John Tain, has a new job. Uh, if he were in the room right now, uh, what advice would you give him about uh, thinking about identity?
1: I'd say, John, um, let me give you a copy of The Soul of the Corporation.
0: <laughs> because,
1: <laughs> because in, in there, and, 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 and I'd say, John, go, go right to the last chapter. Go to the epilogue, because that's where I think the, the, the question that you need to be thinking about is really framed, is framed well. Um, you, you're coming into a company that has a long history – um, which historically has had um a pretty clear identity, although that although recently with the um relatively uh, aggressive acquisition strategy that Stan O'Neill had, uh, my own sense is that identity is probably is probably a little less clear now than it than it has been historically the the challenges are are clearly substantial um what you need to do is Obviously, make sure that the morale of the troops is um, re-energized. And fundamentally, I, I think what you need to do is um, understand the the identity issues that you're facing. Um, and and as you go forward, your question is: Are you going to do anything? Are, are you comfortable and confident about the current identity of? Merrill Lynch, both is seen internally, the troops internally, and is seen by the outside world. Or do you do you think you need to um, work on some reengineering here, some identity reengineering? My guess is that um, that lo- looking at what um, what John did at uh, the, the stock exchange is is that he has a, a pretty good grip on the significance of identity, and it's going to be very interesting to see. uh, what steps he takes to further define and clarify what I think now is a somewhat um, ambiguous identity in the outside world. I wish him, needless to say, good luck and good sailing.
0: John Kimberly, thanks so much for joining us.
1: My pleasure. Thank you.
0: For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.